True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. A woman is raped. She is taken to a police station to open a case. The woman is interviewed and her rape kit is used to collect physical evidence from her body. That evidence may hold the key to her perpetrator's identity if it is unknown or to his successful prosecution, if the offender is known to the victim. But until that evidence is processed at a forensic laboratory, it's just a swab and nothing more. And what happens next might not be what you imagined. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to a Spotlight Minisode, The DNA Delay. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank my new Patreons for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Maisha Adikari and Alinka Brown for signing up to support the show on Patreon. And I'd also like to thank Ilka Zenskirali for her donation through PayPal. All of your support is hugely appreciated. If you'd like to support the show through Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all help to keep the show growing and improving. In Spotlight Minisodes, I usually cover crime stories that are in the media at the moment, but I occasionally like to use the platform to cover specific topics that I think you might find interesting. And in today's episode, I'll be doing just that. There's an organization I follow called DNA Project Africa. It was founded by a lady called Vanessa Lynch after her father was murdered in 2004 in Johannesburg and his killers have never been caught because the crime scene was contaminated and DNA evidence which was present couldn't be lifted. Vanessa founded the NPO and now campaigns in various ways for better DNA processing policies in South Africa. DNA is something that's on the tip of every true crime junkie's tongue, literally and figuratively. We often believe that it's the be-all and end-all of a case, and honestly it has helped to solve many cases which may have otherwise been unsolvable. As DNA has become the most strongly relied upon forensic tool in any investigator's arsenal, criminals have also come to realise that it's very difficult evidence to argue with. Locard's principle of exchange says that every touch leaves a trace, 
And that is the principle that's used when DNA evidence is collected from a crime scene. In a sexual assault, for instance, it's not just semen that's DNA-worthy. Several areas on the victim's body will be swabbed for different sources of DNA, including saliva, sweat and skin cells. After being used for the first time to convict a rapist and killer in 1986, the technology behind DNA testing has improved dramatically. While it was once possible to completely use up a DNA sample, leaving no evidence behind for future tests, today we can first replicate the sample and then test it, meaning that the sample will almost never be used up. The sensitivity of our tests has also improved, and smaller deposits of DNA can now be picked up with far higher accuracy than before. In 2016, this proved to work against the forensics community as they started to realise that touch DNA was being picked up in various tests. Touch DNA is the transfer of skin cells that's left behind on almost every item we touch. Every time you shake someone's hand, okay, back when we were still allowed to shake hands, every time you turn a door handle, every time you pick up an object and set it back down again, you leave your DNA behind. Now this would ordinarily not be too much of an issue, except in 2016, Forensic scientists realised that fingerprint brushes, the kind used to spread powder over a print before it's lifted, were confusing DNA tests by spreading touch DNA from one surface to another. So let's say you found yourself in the unfortunate situation of being in a home where someone was murdered. It would not be strange for your DNA to be all over the house but it wouldn't be good if your DNA was found on a murder weapon. If that murder weapon was brought in from outside of the house and left at the scene. But what happens when the forensic tech starts fingerprinting surfaces with his brush? He brushes the door handle that you touched, and then he brushes the murder weapon with the same brush and transfers your touch DNA from the door handle onto the murder weapon. Thankfully, the minute traces of DNA would make it very unlikely that you'd actually be convicted of murder on that sole basis, but it's a pretty scary thought. Since the revelation of this piece of information in studies, labs now have stricter protocols in place when it comes to the size of DNA samples found at crime scenes. Now let's go back to the scenario I painted at the beginning of the minisode. While I was reading the article that relates to this discovery on the DNA Project website, I spotted a tweet that they'd made in August this year. The project had shared an article by News24 relating to backlogs that had been discovered in the testing of DNA samples, specifically in gender-based violence cases. The revelation actually started in 2019, when, after a string of senseless rapes and murders, South Africans took a stand against GBV and demanded that the government state their position on the matter. 
This was when it was initially revealed that there was a huge backlog in processing DNA for these cases. At the time, various ministers stood up and claimed that by the 31st of March 2020, the backlog in testing would be reduced to 5,000 cases. I wasn't able to find the original number that the labs were backlogged by in 2019, but when News24 released their article this year, it became clear that the targets had not been reached. Not even close. As at August 2020, South Africa has 28,465 DNA tests in the queue at our forensic labs, and those are just for GBV cases. To give us an idea of where we started out, during the period of October 2019 to June 2020, SA Labs processed 23,750 GBV-related DNA samples. Now I have no doubt that the COVID pandemic has impacted the ability of labs to continue testing. Social distancing, having to sanitise labs after employees may have contracted COVID, and the plethora of other issues that were thrown at us in 2020 could not have helped at all. But the fact remains that due to lockdown, the forensic labs would have also had far fewer cases in general coming in. Car accidents were way down, so toxicology tests for those would have been limited, and for a brief period there, our crime rates dropped significantly. Yet we are still left with almost 29,000 samples of DNA that have yet to be tested. Each of those tests represents a woman who was raped or murdered. And each of those tests represents a perpetrator that is walking free. 29,000 violent rapists or murderers, or both, walking around. 90% of rape perpetrators have a history of sex crimes, which means that these people are out there doing it again. Minister Becky Chele claimed that the reason for these delays included a delay in the allocation of funding for the purchase of consumables, rotations of staff members in labs due to COVID restrictions, self-isolation and quarantine due to COVID cases, and the closing of laboratories for decontamination due to COVID. What isn't addressed in those reasons is the fact that all of this only started happening in, in March 2020, but they still had only managed to process 23,000 cases under non-COVID conditions. So clearly, that's the rate at which we can process. And that means that if we started processing the backlog in August, it will be another year until the remaining 29,000 cases are processed and new cases are coming in every day. The only non-COVID reason the minister put forth was the allocation of funding. Funding is an international challenge, not a uniquely South African one. But considering how our economy has taken a nosedive and the additional debt our country has gotten into during the pandemic, 
I can only think that the funding situation is going to get worse and not better. Another aspect of this crisis that carte blanche highlighted last year is the shortage of rape kits at police stations. When the television program broadcast their investigation into this shortage, the usual flurry of activity happened, and this year, Chele announced that every police station in South Africa has stock of rape kits, and that there is sufficient stock on hand for three years. This, of course, begs the question, how many rapists walked free because the golden 72 hours passed before evidence collection was done on the victim? How many of those perpetrators have now added more cases to the lab's tally since then? The other side of the DNA testing coin is the fact that under our new DNA Act passed in 2015, we're now building a national forensic database, which includes the DNA of all offenders arrested after the gazetting of the act, as well as the DNA of unidentified bodies. This means that not only are these labs processing DNA from crime scenes, but they're also tasked with processing the DNA of every person arrested for a Schedule 8 offence, at minimum. Schedule 8 offences include most crimes of a violent nature, including murder, kidnapping and rape. This database is intended to be a tool for investigations, where police can run DNA from a crime scene through the database and compare it to any offenders previously arrested for a violent crime. One source tells me that we're about five years behind in the processing of offender DNA for this database. Whether that number is accurate or not remains to be seen, but I think we can be assured that there is a serious backlog there too. And while you might all be thinking, well, this is just typical of South Africa, the truth is, this isn't just a South African problem. In the United States, who we might hold up as a gold standard of a system working well, they've been dealing with a backlog of DNA for 15 years. Six years ago, that country threw one billion US dollars at the problem, hoping that funding would solve it. And the only result was that their backlog grew by 85% in six years. Authorities there say that the problem will likely never be resolved, as investigators have become more reliant on DNA to solve cases and produce convictions. So is that maybe our problem too? Has our police service become too reliant on forensics to solve cases? In cases like rape, DNA is pretty vital, as otherwise it often becomes a circumstantial case but we were able to arrest and convict murderers and rapists before DNA was a capability. It just meant that we had to dig a bit deeper for evidence. DNA has also become a tool used by the justice system to hasten the closing of cases. In Britain, 85% of offenders will take a plea bargain when faced with DNA evidence. On the other hand... DNA has also managed to exonerate many people across the world that were wrongly convicted of crimes, 
so clearly the circumstantial evidence only route is not foolproof. The advent of genetic genealogy as an investigation tool has certainly changed the game where cold cases are concerned, but I think it's going to be a very long time, if ever, until South Africa is willing or able to use this tool. I do find it interesting, though, that private DNA companies like Ancestry.com are able to process DNA in just a few weeks. I'd really like to delve deeper into this topic, as I think it's important for us to understand exactly how useful DNA could be for us, and whether we're actually relying on it too much as an investigative tool. The identification of missing people, for instance, is a particular area of interest for me, as in many of the cases I've covered recently, families are holding out hope that by submitting their loved one's DNA to the database, they may actually get some answers. How far back does DNA collection from unidentified bodies go, though? Is DNA collected from every unidentified body? And if so, how quickly do those results make it to the database? If current and active cases are so delayed, then it's possible that unidentified deceased people will fall to the bottom of the list, and maybe only make it to the database in a decade? Will anyone even know where the deceased's body has been buried at that point? Despite this complex set of circumstances around DNA testing, it is clear that there are many offenders who would not have been identified and convicted if it wasn't for the DNA they left behind at the scene. And it is for this reason that the DNA Project now hosts training sessions with Neighbourhood Watch and Community Policing Forum groups to teach people how to protect crime scenes. In South Africa, these types of groups are often the first to respond to crimes, and it's vital that they understand the basics of evidence protection. I would love to hear your questions about the DNA process in South Africa, so please be sure to post those on our social media platforms. I'd also really like to interview someone that works with criminal DNA profiling on a daily basis. So if you are that person, or you know someone that does, please reach out to me either on social media or on my email, which is wordsmith195 at gmail.com. I do hope that you found today's mini-sode interesting. If you enjoyed this mini-sode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the app you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. I'll be back next Friday with the full case episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. <laughs>